One day more, one day more People let me tell you what we're fighting for We're fighting for our future, don't you understand? We don't need your pity, we just need your helping hand. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show is Matilda and the Wobblies. Our opening song is One Day More by Elaine Perky. From the Ukrainian Pale to Bridgeport, Connecticut, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Radicalized by deplorable labor conditions for immigrants in America, Matilda Rabinowitz became one of the only women to organize for the industrial workers of the world. Rabinowitz immigrated to the United States from Ukraine at the age of 13. Radicalized by her experience in sweatshops, she became an organizer for the industrial workers of the world from 1912 to 1917, before choosing single motherhood in 1918. Our guest today is her granddaughter, Robin Legere Henderson, who has illustrated Matilda's memoir with black and white scratchboard drawings. She depicts her grandmother's life in the Pale of Settlement in Ukraine, her journey to America and political awakening, her work as an organizer for the IWW, a turbulent romance, and her struggle to support herself and her child. Henderson's book is Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman. And in it, Rabinowitz describes the ways in which she and her contemporaries rejected the intellectual and social restrictions imposed on women as they sought political and economic equality in the first half of the 20th century. Rabinowitz devoted her labor and commitment to the notion that women should feel entitled to independence, equal rights, equal pay, and sexual and personal autonomy. She may be best remembered for her organizing auto workers in Detroit at the Studebaker plant, who began calling for the eight-hour day and weekly rather than bi-monthly paychecks, and held a combined skilled and unskilled walkout on June 17, 1913. This action, considered to be the first major strike at a U.S. auto plant, may not have occurred without Rabinowitz's work. But it's a troubled love for another labor organizer, Ben Legere, that animates this story and makes it more than just an account of socialist labor organizing in the same years that would see the Russian Revolution explode into world consciousness. And now, Matilda and the Wobblies, a conversation with Robin Henderson on Interchange on WFHB. People let me tell you what we're fighting for. We're fighting for your future, don't you understand? You won't need our pity, you just need our helping hand To fight one day more, one day more If the companies can hold out 20 years, we can hold out one day more One day more, one day more If the companies can hold out 20 years, we'll hold out one day more. Welcome to Interchange, Robin Henderson. Hi, Doug. I'm glad to be here. Uh, your book is Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman, a memoir from the early 20th century. Can you just, uh, I guess, give us a, a brief or a general sense of what it's about before we get into particulars? Sure. Uh, the book was um, based on a memoir that was written by my grandmother, Matilda Rabinowitz, um, who was uh, born in 1887 and immigrated to the U.S. in 1900 on Christmas Day. 
and was radicalized by her um, introduction to America, working in sweatshops in the East Coast, and became a, an organizer for the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the IWW or the Wobblies. Mm -hmm. um, so let's get a sense of what prompted you to bring this memoir uh, out, to bring it into the light. Well, um, my mother and I found the memoir. It was a typed manuscript of about 100 pages uh, among my grandmother's papers um, right after her death. We think that it was probably written around uh, the time that she was in her early 60s. And when we read it, we thought, this is an amazing historical document. There's very few first-person accounts of... Uh, labor activities at, during this the period of the the early days of the IWW, and um, as time wore on, and I became a little I was twenty when my grandmother died, so I remember her as an adult, but I was pretty young still uh, in terms of really understanding the the trajectory of history, and I, I I just felt like for years and years I felt like it really needed to be read by many more people because Matilda was one of only two. Um, women organizers for the IWW during their heyday and she's been overlooked by historians um, for many years and we felt that it was time for her, t her work to be recognized as well. Hmm. Uh, also, tell us a little bit about your role as a researcher here. You obviously do more than present the memoir in this book. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, that was, I think, the hardest... Um, the hardest thing to, uh, for me was to try to put on a historian's hat because I'm not a historian, I'm an artist. But I did have a pretty good education and I learned how to do library research. And then with the new um, um, technology that's available, doing it on the internet was really wonderful. Hmm. So I found lots of uh, documents that either commented on these times or, or fleshed out some of the characters that she mentioned. And I tried my hand as a, um, a journeyman writer, uh, trying to um, add context to the material. But the most important uh, part of my work for me was doing the drawings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about that. You, as you say, you're an artist, uh, you, uh, you were a painter or are a painter, and these are, these are drawings, though. Yes, um, I, I was very... Um, confused about how to proceed for a long time. I knew the story needed telling. I knew I could help tell it, but it didn't occur to me that I could also illustrate it. Mm. And so about five years ago, I started with a drawing medium called Scratchboard, and I I really took to it. I really was enjoying the drawing. And, and for some reason, one day I realized, oh my goodness, I could illustrate this story uh, that Matilda tells. And these, this kind of drawing, this particular style of drawing that the scratchboard is very much like a, it looks like a, a woodblock print or a mm -hmm. lino. And it seemed to have a resonance with the historical period that we were commenting on because many books at that time were illustrated with the same kinds of very graphic line uh, black and white drawings. Mm. Well, uh, let's go into a little bit about Matilda uh, as your book tracks or the memoir itself tracks her, her early life and then on through her work as an organizer as well and her personal life, as you say. Let's start with the early life of the immigrant girl, I guess, before she, before she emigrates. Uh, where does Matilda come from? 
they were uh, her family were um, Jews that lived in the Ukrainian part of what was then Russia under uh, the Tsar Nicholas II. And um, the, as as time wore on for people living in what was now what we now know as the shtetl, or it was the pale of, of Jewish settlement in in this part of the world, as time went on, uh, conditions for Jews got worse and worse, and um, and people's livelihoods were begun to be. Uh, affected by various laws that were passed to control commerce uh, among Jews and with Jews and and the rest of the population and certain kinds of jobs that were uh, proscribed for Jews so they couldn't become doctors or lawyers and they were pretty much uh, limited to small business people and peddlers and that sort of thing and and so my grandmother's family found it harder they they ran an inn and they found it harder and harder to survive so my great grandfather left for the United States and after five years uh, accumulated half the, the money that was needed to bring the family over and the other half was provided by his lodge, his his lodge of, of male friends usually from the same part of the world as, as he came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, you said in the Ukraine, and this is uh, part of Russia at the time, uh, this is an, an agrarian backwater for the most part. Um, there's really very little to do as far as the, the, the memoir points out. And, and there's little education for even boys. Uh, again, as you say, proscribed uh, for Jews, uh, little education for, for even boys at the time and, and hardly any for, for girls, I would imagine, right? That's true, although Matilda was the first um, generation in her family for as a girl to be educated in the Tsarist school. So mm. she she went through the what would be the equivalent of the eighth grade in, in Russia, and she was really a crack student. She loved study. She loved literature and history, and she spoke a number of languages. I, her, her original language was Yiddish, but she also spoke Russian, Ukrainian, Polish, a little bit of German and some Slovak. So, and she, she that that kind of a facility that she had with languages helped her to learn in perfect English when she got here. Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Matilda and the Wobblies about Ukrainian immigrant and labor organizer Matilda Rabinowitz with her granddaughter, the artist Robin Legere Henderson. Uh, okay, so uh, so they uh, they come over to the country, uh, land in Sandy Hook, as you say, uh, either uh, what what was it, New Year's Eve? I mean, excuse me, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, nineteen hundred, was it? That's right, nineteen hundred. Mm-hmm. And she made a big thing in in later years. It's the one thing I knew about her coming to the states is that she arrived on Christmas Day. Mm. What's uh, what? One of the things that struck uh, struck me uh, throughout, and 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 I think these things are not surprises if you spend even two seconds kind of looking at immigration, right, or looking at these periods of history and trying to match the myth of this, you know, great welcoming land to the actual lives being lived uh, that, you know, that people come to this country with 
with obviously uh, hopes and dreams and, and again, escaping from where they were. And there's not, it's not to say that you don't find better lives in some ways when you escape from where you were, specifically uh, Tsarist Russia, I assume. But there is definitely a, a function that we forget about here. You know, the, the Statue of Liberty stands there and says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Um, and then they come and they experience what Matilda experienced, right? Yeah, um, she she told me once that that uh, she said, well, I was a realist. I didn't believe that the streets were paved with gold, as some people thought. But I I did expect a, a small house with a white picket fence and maybe some flowers. And in fact, what met her were the tenements of the Lower East Side and grueling uh, 12 to 14 hour days in sweatshops, clipping threads in a shirtwaist factory when she longed to be a student. And the whole family went to work. Her brothers became um, newsboys. Her father was a machinist. Her mother did piecework at home, uh, turning ties and and what she could to to raise a, make a living for the family. Mm-hmm. So it was a big disappointment uh, to Matilda. Yeah, not not a surprise in some ways, I suppose. Uh, for us, again, looking back and thinking about it, if if you just imagine, te- if you can say the word tenement and and, and imagine that being a, a rosy, cheerful place to to come to, uh, you're having trouble understanding what things are in the world, I suppose. Um, but she came here, and and one of the things that seems interesting throughout is her. Uh, I think you you just mentioned her sort of uh, imagined white picket fence, but but one thing that's really important to or throughout is this sense of uh, maybe space and, and nature and greenery that, that you know, it's, it's just not possible to get in the city. Right. And and even today, I, I, I was recently in New York City and I said something to, to the effect that one of the things I liked about living in California was that we were so close to nature. And my, my, my uh, friend said to me, but we have Central Park. And it made me laugh because I thought, you know, Matilda never saw Central Park, for one thing. She was confined to the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. And, and, but she did long for nature. And one of her, for her earliest memories of, of escaping New York was a year later when they moved to Connecticut. And she, it was uh, a lilac season, and she saw this beautiful lilac bush uh, blooming up the muddy road from the uh, the boat that carried them across the sound. And she just threw her arms around the uh, lilacs. She was so happy to see um, nature. <laughs> and that's always a, a, a desire for her. And it, it, it's really nice in the book that she has so many wonderful descriptions of natural environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's uh, that, uh, that's also good about this book is, is the way that, uh, as you say, it gives a personal account of what it means to to go to work, you know, to do these kinds of uh, uh, piecework jobs, to be in factories, to be uh, in 60-hour, 55-hour, uh, you know, half-day Saturday uh, jobs as well, uh, as children even, right? And and trying to get a sense of, of the idea of labor organization uh, that sort of springs out of a kind of necessity, right? These are, these are thousands of people in factories doing just, just mind-numbing work and dangerous work in many cases as well, right? And here, here is a good way to to kind of get a sense for what it means to to one girl who is trying to figure out what it is that's supposed to, that she's supposed to do. You know that that can make life different for her. She's she's kind of a little bit of on the outside of of all these things. 
Yes, um, she and she felt herself both in and out. Um, I think she was greatly radicalized by her experience as a, a low-paid paid worker. And by the time she was in her early 20s, she had become a socialist and, um, and, and began to think about ways that she could alleviate um, the conditions that she faced uh, along with her fellow workers. And she had a lot of compassion for everybody that she was involved in. She didn't have the, the, the idea that she was going to escape and become different. She wanted everybody to escape from this kind of uh, toil and, and uh, oppression. It's time for a break. This is Factory Girl, performed by Rhiannon Giddens. Stay with us for more with Robin Henderson on her grandmother, the wobbly organizer Matilda Rabinowitz, when Interchange returns on WFHB. As I went to walk in a fine summer's morning The birds on the bushes did whistle and sing The lads and the lassies in couples were sporting Then back to the factory their work to begin I saw one amongst them, she was fairer than any Her cheeks like the roses that bloom in the spring Her skin like the lily that grows in yon valley She was only a hard-working Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm your host, Doug Storm. Our guest is Robin Henderson, whose grandmother was Matilda Rabinowitz, one of the only female organizers for the IWW. After Matilda learns the craft of making hats and feels pride in being an artisan, 
she soon discovers that the factory floor erases that pride, literally, piece by piece. This is the alienation of labor. So socialism's kind of in the air at this time, uh, obviously, and, and the sort of change in factory labor is happening at the same time. Maybe this is no accident, right? The, 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 a big part of the book is, is how um, Matilda frames her, her um, experience of becoming, learning, a, learning a trade, learning a craft, learning millinery, right? Which I think is making a hat. Is that right? Is that right? That's right. Right? So she, she learns a trade and there's, there's pride in, in, in creating a thing, right? There's pride in making a hat and being, uh, being an artisan, being a craftsman as well. Um, but that pride goes away when you move to the factory floor and you do a single uh, part of the hat and never actually make a whole hat yourself. Yes, and, and, and one of her comments is uh, after the, the looking for work as uh, making hats and not being able to find anything, she ended up making corsets. Mm. And one of the things she says in her book is, I never saw anybody make a, a whole corset or even a half a corset or even a quarter of a corset, corset. And she just did one operation all day long. And here was this brilliant, I think, uh, um, passionate and creative young woman just numbed by the um, the boring task that she had to perform for 10 to 12 hours every day. Mm. Yeah, it's unbelievable and, to, to try to imagine. Uh, well, it's not unbelievable. People still do. People still do this kind of work in many ways, right? Many, many areas of the world as well as, as this one. So uh, these are things we're still struggling with. Obviously, we're, we're still kind of I guess combating uh, a capitalist boss ethos as as we continue, and it's one of the things that makes this book fascinating is that a you know, hundred years on, hundred plus years on, this is this continues to be our issue or one of the one of our many issues. You know, is how we how we deal with workers um, or how workers are are relegated to. Uh, lower class individuals for the most part. And, and a nice thing about this is the kind of solidarity in a lot of these movement situations where people begin to organize, begin to work together, begin to understand that there, there might be ways in which life could be different. Yes. I'm, Matilda was really attracted to, um, to the radical wing of the Socialist Party and then to the Wobblies because of that, that, um, idea that 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 we could in in union their strength as as mm-hmm. they said then and we still say um, that that was the only way that we could really change things was to change them for everybody to change them at the root. Mm-hmm. What um, when when we say radical uh, in this situation, you know what what is radical to Matilda? What is it that is it just the experience of life that radicalizes her? Is she also re- reading radical literature at the time? Oh, she was reading a lot, and she was attending socialist lectures. She was um, she was attending plays that had socialist themes. Um, her her lover at the time, my grandfather Ben Leger, was an actor, and she even performed in in a play that he um, was uh, involved in. And and she so she was just absorbing everything that was in the atmosphere at the time, among the intelligentsia and and workers and the and the working class at that time, 
there was there was a big component of of workers that cared about poetry that cared about music i mean the wobblies were famous for their song and their and their creative their cartoons and their creative um the work that they did in in the, in the name of of organization and organizing workers one and of, she was attracted to that too yeah one of the slogans um i don't know which uh, which uh, group this slogan comes from but you you write in the book give us bread and and give us roses too the idea that we we need to live on more than work right and i think that came from the uh, lawrence massachusetts strike that was that sometime known, known as the bread and roses strike that was a big refrain in the movement at that time that we need both beauty and sustenance in our life This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Matilda and the Wobblies, about Ukrainian immigrant and labor organizer Matilda Rabinowitz, with her granddaughter, the artist Robin Legere Henderson. So there, uh, you mentioned at the beginning that uh, that Matilda is a little known to labor historians. Now she does she does write a few passages in some some uh, histories, but uh, is is not actually um, treated correctly. Even that that she's misremembered or misidentified or mis you know her the sense of who she was is not does not come clear in these histories as well. Why do you think that is? Where where did Matilda go in history? Well, I think there were a couple of things. First of all, her activities were not that long. She only was really active in the movement in the organ as an organizer um, for the IWW for five years. Uh, the other thing I think is is that um, that she um, that that the Wobblies were really a male-dominated organization, even though they gave lip service to women. There were really only two um, organizers at the time Matilda was active. One was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and she's quite well known. She left a, mem uh, a memoir herself, and and then the other was Matilda, and Matilda's memoir was not known. She did not write something for posterity, although she, I think she intended it as a private document for us. Um, so that that's one of the things I think that being a woman being. Um, being in the movement for a short, shorter time than others. And also, she, she clung to the ideals of socialism till the very end of her life. And a lot of people who wrote labor history more um, leaned toward the Communist Party, which, which Matilda was, was not a fan of. And I think the other thing is she was so well-spoken. She writes so well. She wrote all her life. She wrote articles for social, the Socialist Newsletter, the Industrial Worker, and, and her writing is is every bit as good as anybody with a college education. So I can see that, and, and her speech, her, her speech in English, you could not tell she was a foreigner the way she spoke. Um, so I think that that made people assume that she came from a different class. But if you read the conditions under which she she labored um, from the time she was born, you, you'll see that it's quite clear that she was hardly middle class. Mm. Well, you know, it's one of the, the I guess it's uh, my own sort of um, romantic 
big failing to to sort of want to compare her on some level to Rosa Luxemburg just because they're similar uh, sizes, you know, their striking sense of who they are, uh, their fierceness in the face of, uh, as you say, a very male-dominated world. There's a, a, a pretty classic image of Rosa Luxemburg sitting amongst all these other, you know, men with ties and, and with their, their facial hair, and, <laughs> and there she is in the middle of them, and you get, you get the same thing with, with Matilda. Yeah, um, she she was, as you say, she was tiny. She was only 4'10", and, um, and she was very foreign-looking. She looked dark and, and, and Russian, as they said. I think it was a code for Jewish. Um, but uh, she was, yeah, yeah and they, <laughs> you say at one point, and there's a newspaper article calling her a Russian beauty, right? Yes, yeah. It, that was when she led a strike in Detroit, I think, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the first automobile industry the strike. The Studebaker strike. A Studebaker strike mm-hmm. of 1913. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's when they call her the little Russian beauty. And she, <laughs> her size was always commented upon. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn called her a capable little woman. Mm-hmm. And so it was remarkable how small she was. Well, there's some class uh, class issues that come up throughout as well. As, as you note throughout that there's very little in her memoir about other women that are involved in... Uh, in the strike organizations as well, and there you do speculate at one point there's a, a class distinction. I forget which uh, which strike this was in particular, but that there's there's a sense maybe of class distinction that even uh, Matilda makes uh, with with other activists, other organizers. Yeah, I think I think probably there might have been a little resentment uh, about opportunities that some of the people who were co-workers with her in the movement um, had that she wasn't uh, able to get for herself. And and I, I do think she always had a very, very, um, a very uh, deep uh, identity with uh, the working class. She, she and she really admired work. Um, and especially artisanship. She was very, well, I think she encouraged me as an artist and my brother, who's also an artist, she encouraged us both in, in the working with our hands. That was very important to her. Um, and, and I, it could have been a class issue as well. Mm-hmm. It's time for another break. This is Bread and Roses by Bobby McGee. When we return to Matilda and the Wobblies, we'll take a look at the various strikes Matilda helped organize and just what it takes to do such work. Stay with us for more with Robin Henderson when Interchange returns. Our touch with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses For the people hear us singing Bread and roses, bread and roses As we come marching, marching, we battle too for men. For they are women's children, and we mother them again. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. As we come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead Go crying through our singing, their ancient song for bread Small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits new Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight 
for roses too. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Matilda and the Wobblies. In this segment, we'll hear about the meeting between Ben Legere and Matilda Rabinowitz, beginning a love affair that was star-crossed and also fodder used against the IWW for being an organization promoting immorality. Ben Legere was married. A sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and roses. Well, um, let's talk about a few of the 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 work, uh, some of the work she did, uh, some of the particular strikes that she helped organize or got involved in, and and the the personal life that grew out of that as well. You you talked about uh, Ben, your your grandfather already, Ben Legere, um, and this is a large part of the book. Th- uh, also, obviously, it's a, a memoir of that relationship as well, uh, and this is kind of tied up with the the work also. But let's 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 go through the work first, and 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 just detail a few of the the particular strikes that she was involved in. Okay, well, her, she she her maiden strike voyage was uh, in uh, 1912 in a small town in upstate New York on the Mohawk River, Little Falls. And um, there was a, uh, a, a couple of uh, textile factories there, woolen mills, that uh, spontaneously, there was a spontaneous wa- walkout, and it was just after the Lawrence strike and before Patterson. So it was in between these two really significant strikes that were led by the Wobblies. And so he, uh, here was this little strike that, that first my grandfather, Ben Legere, was sent to organize with a, a, a co-worker uh, Filippo Bocchini, an Italian IWW, um, and immediately the two of them were arrested. And so Matilda was sent, um, and and it, she says in her memoir, I was never in a strike before, and she was quite um, nervous and, and scared about what her role would be or, or ha- and how she would fulfill it. Um, but she... Uh, just jumped right in. And one of the things I think it's interesting about the account of that is how detailed she is in all the um, the day-to-day activities that, that a organizer has to do. It's not just walking in a picket line. It's, it's going to meetings and keeping the books and organizing the kitchen and organizing um, uh, repair of garments and shoes and that sort of thing and just really keeping the whole everybody alive and and um, active during the strike and so uh, that that really honed her and it was a really um, for her even though it was a small strike and and didn't count for much in the great scheme of things for her it was the most important I think uh, learning experience and and really inspired her to continue the work hmm. and then after that the wobbly center she at first she didn't understand that she was deserving of of a stipend from the organization for her work and she was worried about money because she only had a small amount of money saved and she was spending it on this first strike but the IWW said oh no you can be a you can be an organizer for us and we'll give you you know um, money from our treasury and as she says when there were funds mm-hmm. but anyway they sent her around and and she went to Liverpool Ohio she went to um, Detroit, which was another significant, she's really remembered for that strike, I think more than any others uh, I- historically that, sh- that she led. 
as we mentioned before, it was at Studebaker in Detroit, which was at that time right next to the the Ford uh, the Ford assembly plant. The factory, the Studebaker factory, was right next to the Ford plant. And um, some historians, um, rather than Henry Ford deciding that he had to give his workers higher pay because so they could afford the cars that they helped assemble, th- they feel that that he um, granted the five dollar a day. Uh, which was high then, which was a, a good salary then, that he granted that because he was afraid of unionization after seeing what was happening right next door with a f- 10,000 people assembling to listen to this little woman on a soapbox. <laughs> well, it would be a good time for, for multiple strikes. It's one of the things that maybe um, comes up comes out when you start to think of these things in terms of other, even revolutionary mo- moments. I, I mentioned, you know, the the Russian Revolution in 1917, 19, 1905 as well, that there are mass uh, strikes, spontaneous strikes that are, are full, like 40,000, 50,000, you know, people stream out of their factories. And, and it it is a necessary thing, it seems, when these things are happening, that they kind of roll into each other. Yeah, and and you're right. There were lots of of these strikes occurring at that time in small places like pottery factories in Liverpool, Ohio, stogie factories in Pennsylvania, um, a a steel mill strike in in, uh, Pittsburgh, near Pittsburgh. Um, And Matilda um, helped lead all of these strikes. And uh, her final uh, foray in the labor movement was, she said, the toughest job she ever had when she was sent south to South Carolina, to Greenville, South Carolina, to organize cotton mill workers there. And the conditions she found there, she said, were were appalling to her, even after seeing how awful things were in, in the Northeast, to see the way people lived and the kinds of diets they had and the way little children as young as nine years old were working 12-hour days in these cotton mills. And being a stranger, uh, a Yankee uh, nominally in, in the South, um, I, think, I think this is probably was one of the things that really um, made her decide that she wanted to lead a different kind of life, that organizing was just too great a struggle. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Matilda and the Wobblies, about Ukrainian immigrant and labor organizer Matilda Rabinowitz, with her granddaughter, the artist Robin Legere Henderson. Well, it certainly is, and um, the the before we move into that again, the more I think more personal reflections and and the personal side of this, uh, although although organizing is of course personal as well, and I wanted to talk talk a little bit about um, what seems to me her her primary interest or how she continues to focus on education um, on on you know, this being an issue is that you can't just have people striking. You have to have them know why they're striking or what, what the thing they're going to strike for, uh, is going to lead to for them. And part of it is, is trying to educate so that other workers can lead and organize as well. Uh, in, in Russian, I think they call this the practic, you know, the, uh, the, the one who, who's going to, uh, lead to the next worker and then the, that worker will teach the next worker and so on and so forth. Yeah, that was definitely part of her um, her organizing um, 
strategy was to, um, and particularly with the women, she really wanted to engage the women and make them feel that they they could exercise their power, they could exercise their autonomy, and they could make decisions uh, that would affect them and their families, and that she, uh, that that it shouldn't be left to the men. And and so yes, education was really really important. Um, and and she had a lot of theory. Matilda really understood labor theory. She understood history. She understood how democracy was supposed to work and how it didn't seem to be working in the case of of the people that she was in contact with. And she was able to articulate that to the workers and encourage them to take on their own. Um, struggles and and try to solve these problems and each one teach one. Hmm. Now she speaks um, highly of one one person in particular, uh, Vincent Saint Paul, and not so highly of another well known uh, wobbly, uh, Bill Haywood. Does uh, there's can you detail those two people for us? Yes, uh, Vincent Saint John was was uh, Saint John. Sorry. Yeah, was called um, the saint. And I think that it wasn't just because his name was St. John, but that he was really a very austere and dedicated and um, ethical um, leader of, of the IWW. He was the secretary, the general secretary of the IWW at the time that Matilda was, was active. Bill Haywood uh, was one of the um, founders of the IWW, along with um, people that probably most of your listeners have heard of, uh, Mother Jones. Um, but and and he was uh, probably very very effective at the beginning. He came out of the the mines of of uh, Colorado and the West. Um, but by the time Matilda knew him, although he was quite famous um, at the time, she felt that he, um, as she said, he lacked repose and patience. And and she had a lot of criticisms of of Haywood, of his, both his personality and, and his effectiveness as a leader. And I think most of all, the thing that she, that, that turned her against him was it, when he was, uh, after he was, the IWW was arrested in a huge, um, uh, kind of a dragnet, um, in the, in the teens, he um, jumped, he borrowed money from his socialist friends, a lot of money, and then to pay his bail and then jumped bail and went to Russia. And Matilda could never forgive him for that. And, and I think that's why he, he has such a, a bad rap in her book. Hmm. Well, you speak of, uh, again, the saint, as, uh, or she does, and uh, the saint a few times as being so clear and lucid and uh, able to explain things so well. Yes, um, she that she felt that, and she said she learned more from him than than any of the other wobbly leaders, just in the way he was able to describe and and explain and and lay out things in a very clear manner. And it helped her to be able to try to do the same thing with the people that she was trying to teach. She had a great deal of admiration for him. Yeah, right? it came it comes clear in in the memoir. And she mentions it more than once. Uh, how how important that was to her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so let's shift now, if you don't mind, and we'll we'll talk about uh, the the relationship. There's uh, there are, are love letters at the center of the book, actually, that uh, are uh, something of an exposure and uh, used against uh, the uh, the wobblies or this uh, situation. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where those uh, those love letters, uh, and then we can kind of track back into how uh, Ben and Matilda met. 
Okay. Well, um, Ben, at the time that they met and during the time of this first strike in Little Falls, um, Ben was married with two children. And it it was well known in in their circles that they that Matilda and Ben were in love. And um, one of the reasons she wanted to get out of Bridgeport, where they were both from, was because their relationship was causing some gossip. And um, so while while Ben was in jail, he penned these letters to Matilda, and she responded. And Matilda never knew that I was in possession of these letters. Hmm. Um, my, my grandfather, when I met him years later um, and knew him a little bit, handed me these clippings from, uh, you know, 1913 about, um, about the, the, this, these letters that were they, were, they were passed between them, but the person who was meant to take the letters obviously was a spy, and there were many in the in the organization at the time, as there still are today in political organizations. And he um, turned them over to the authorities, and then they were used in the newspaper to try to show moral turpitude between these two so-called labor leaders. Um, I, I'm sure it was very embarrassing to my grandmother, but my grandfather reveled in the attention. They were quite different in their personalities. It's time for our final break. This is Factory Girl by the Rolling Stones. When we return, what's love got to do with it? Marriage is a tool of the state and a corruption of fellow feeling. Stay with us. More Matilda and the Wobblies when we return. back. This is Interchange on WFHB. In this final segment of Matilda and the Wobblies, we get personal. Matilda Rabinowitz wants to have a child and has no interest in being married. What did it mean to wear no ring in 1918? Once more, Robin Legere Henderson on her grandmother, an immigrant girl turned radical woman. Yeah, my big part of the book is your a little, a little bit, I guess, is your actual surprise or continuing response to the fact that she stayed with him. She did on again, off again, um, and always vowing never to to resume the relationship, and then always giving in to his um, his pleas. 
And and um, it is mystifying to me, but who knows the course of love? I, I you can't predict <laughs> that for other people, but it always did surprise me. And it's as far as I know, it's the only relationship she ever had. Um, but it was an intense and tumultuous one. I think it was probably very exciting for both of them at the time. And of course. Um, Matilda believed in f- free love, which was an, an idea at that time. I think um, you mentioned Rosa Luxemburg and I and uh, and other great women that are known mm-hmm. supported this notion that people should have autonomy, that, that the state should have nothing to do with people's personal relationships, and that marriage was, as my grandmother told me, a corrupt institution. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, yes, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, it's an important aspect of the time, right? This is also Marx and Engels. Engels in particular writes a big, uh, writes a, you know, a tract uh, about uh, family and its, you know, value to patriarchy. And uh, again, it's a, it's a, it's, I would say maybe the Russian Revolution gives a little lip lip service to it in, in terms of what uh, I think it's Alexandra Kolontai was also a free love advocate at the time. Um, uh, Similar time period, similar people, similar types of people as well. So it's not, it wasn't a surprise to hear it, but it, she's embroiled in a, a relationship with a with a man that I suppose too many of us are probably aware of the kind of person that Ben seems to be. Yeah, I think, I think the notion of free love was, was very much embraced by a lot of the men at that time because, boy, it was good for them. <laughs> it's the sa- same thing happened in the 60s, right? We're happy about free love. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, Matilda really was uh, did believe in that, and she she ended up at the age of about thirty or thirty one, uh, really desiring to have a child. She had never thought about it before, but but now she was. I think the biological clock must have been ticking, and she really wanted a baby, but she didn't want a husband, and she went right ahead and did what you need to do to get a baby. And she um, uh, uh, vowed that she would she was was determined to take on this respons- the sole responsibility of parenthood. She never expected any help from her from the father of the child. And uh, although I think she became increasingly disappointed with how little he was engaged in um, either her welfare or his daughter's welfare and he ended up having uh, six children five daughters and one son at the very end so yeah he got around a lot and he had the, these various families by a number of different women yeah a big part of the book is is that decision and the life that she lives after being um you know you you fill in the i guess you fill in the blanks in some sense but a lot a lot of the book is you know what it means to to be um uh, an unwed mother uh, in the term we would use at the time and, and the way that uh, she actually try, you know, went about hiding that aspect, right? Yeah, she was remarkably brave for her time, I think. I mean, today we're, we don't bat an eyelid at, at single moms and uh, people raising their kids without benefit of marriage, as Matilda would have said. Um, but but in those times, it was deeply disapproved of, and fallen women were uh, considered, you know, evil. And so my grandmother um, took the the um, the misses the misses as her 
title and today we don't have to even deal with that because we can be Ms. and just that just indicates our gender, not our marital status. And um, but in those days, the, the amount of bravery that she expressed and she taught herself typing and shorthand to get out of doing factory work and to be able to have a, a white collar job and and provide a relatively middle class life for herself and her daughter. She was determined to have my mother educated and my mother did go to college and got a degree. And I think it was my grandmother really wanted that f for her child. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Matilda and the Wobblies, about Ukrainian immigrant and labor organizer Matilda Rabinowitz, with her granddaughter, the artist Robin Legere Henderson. Well, uh, I, I'm going to back up a little bit here, but I, we did skip over one thing that I thought was actually so fascinating about uh, Matilda and, and, like you say, her, her facility with language and her intelligence and her capacity to work within particular immigrant communities as well. She, she, she's made useful to the cause in that way, too, uh, with um, uh, another woman. Is her name Our Witch or something like that? Horwich, yeah. Horwich, Marie Horwich. Horwich. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mary Ho Horwich, okay, okay. Yeah. And she, she's, uh, is she an academic at the time, or is she also working within the union organization? Well, she was, she was an academic. She had a degree in economics, and her father was a well-known economist. Um, originally, they were both from Russia. Marie and Matilda had the same Russian-Jewish background, although Marie was well-educated. And she... She um, engaged Matilda in, she was at the time doing surveys for government surveys on working conditions among women in various industries in the Northeast. Marie was. And she invited Matilda to help her with her research. And Matilda was very useful to, to Marie because she was a quick study for one thing. She learned the, the, the details of how to record statistics uh, very, very rapidly. And, but she also spoke a number of languages that were used by uh, these monolingual women who were working in these various sweatshops that, where the interviews were taking place. So, and Marie, although she spoke Russian and English, was so busy with leading these events that she, um, that, that she didn't really have time to, um, to do the, the translating duties that Matilda took on. And this really launched Matilda on, on, with, on, the, on the trajectory that, that she could get out. She didn't have to be working in a sweatshop anymore. She didn't have to take factory work anymore. She could do this more white collar work and, and maybe be useful. And I think it was her intelligence and her pluck that, that made that possible for her. Hmm. Well, that was a, a very interesting part. It, it, it hearkened my own, uh, well, it didn't hearken anything. It's a ridiculous word for me. It, it, I hearkened back. I'm going <laughs> to, uh, um, uh, you know, not too long ago, I saw a movie um, based on a book. I think it was Colm Toibin's book. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's basically an immigrant story where, you know, a woman falls in love or she, she goes and works in a, uh, I think a she becomes a shop girl of some kind, right? And it's about uh, living in... Um, uh, houses with other immigrant uh, women, young women who have the same 
you know, a background and things like that. And, you know, there's a part of me when I was watching that, I didn't quite understand why I was watching that movie. It didn't really, it didn't show me anything about the world. It showed me a kind of romantic idea of, 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 you know, following, falling in love with someone from a different part of the world, just kind of a, a standard romantic story in some sense, but set in that same period where, uh, you know, immigrants are living together in houses of, of women, you know, and having to protect their reputations and things of this nature. But I thought to myself, as I was reading your book in this section about uh, Marie Horwich and, and Matilda, I thought, you know, that, that would have been a great, like this should have been that movie, right? That would have been fascinating. I think that's really true. I think one of the things that the milieu that Matilda existed in, there was a lot of uh, back and forth. I mean, there there was a, this sense of of uh, mutual help and and a kind of try uh, uh, a an effort to erase class distinctions or to to not necessarily erase them, but to to make them not the the primary focus and to try to in, be inclusive. And there was a, a lot of, of mutual aid that happened among socialists during that time and bohemians. And there was some overlap between the bohemian world of artists and writers and actors that my grandfather was part of and the political world that Matilda occupied of, of organizing and unions and socialist socialism and that sort of thing. And I think that, that the the, the, the communities that developed, uh, uh, particularly among women uh, and, uh, at that time, are, are really worth a, a lot more uh, examination than, than we seem to have given them um, so far in looking at this history. That's our show. We'll close with Pussy Riot. This is a new one. Make America Great Again. Thanks to artist Robin Legere Henderson for joining us to discuss her grandmother, Matilda Rabinowitz, of whom IWW founder Big Bill Haywood said a book could be written about her. Well, one has. Immigrant Girl, Radical Woman, published by Cornell University Press. Next time on Interchange, Lying for Truth, Joan Hawkins in conversation with author Lori Stone on craft, sex, and censorship. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. And executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up on your community radio station, WFHB. Could you imagine the bomb edition calling the woman a dog? Do you want to stay in the kitchen? Is that where you belong? Do you picture the perfect leader? How do you want him to be? Has he promoted the use of torture and killing families? Did your mama come from Mexico?